Well, this is uh, quite an exciting moment uh, for us as congregations as uh, we actually meet as some form of uh, God's people here tonight. We have invited not just the praise team, but some of the praise team members to be part of our small congregation tonight. And even though it might be a small congregation, it's a thrilling sight to actually have people sitting in real seats, sharing and worship together in this way. And we hope you folks at home are benefiting from that as well tonight. Can I ask you to turn to the very last chapter of an Old Testament book? It's the book of Job. Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42. We're going to read that together and we're going to take a little bit of time in that tonight as we think about uh, Job and his friends and the end of this wonderful story at, in the middle of the Old Testament. Job chapter 42. It's a fairly short chapter, so we'll read all of it together tonight. Job chapter 42. Let's read it together. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, Listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will answer me. My ears had heard of you, but my eyes have now seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over the trouble the Lord had brought upon him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys, and he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapok. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so Job died an old man and full of years. Let's pray before we turn to God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet together on this Sunday evening with great anticipation in our hearts of the weeks that are to come when we will begin to gather in bigger numbers together as your people. Thank you that we've got to that stage in the reopening of so many facilities, but especially when it comes to our spiritual good and the building up of God's people. We look forward to days ahead of praise and worship here in this place and in the comfort in the weeks and the months and indeed the years to come. But for now, O oh God, we ask that you'd speak to us in this moment through your word from Job 42. 
and that you'd give us ears to hear what you have to say to your church tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's so, so hard, isn't it, to cultivate a humble heart in this 21st century age, especially with the get-ahead culture in which we live, and to fully understand a biblical term like repentance. A heartfelt sorrow that admits, I was wrong, please forgive me. There's no better example of this than a true story from Charlotte, North Carolina. Back in 2002, there was a lawyer who purchased a box of rare cigars, and he insured them, wait for it, against fire, amongst other things. But within a month, having smoked a lot, he put in a claim. And in his claim, he stated that each of the cigars had been lost in a small series of fires. But the insurance company, quite rightly, refused to pay out for the obvious reason that these small fires were caused by the man actually smoking them. But he was a lawyer, and so he sued, he presented his case, and he won. In delivering his ruling, the judge agreed with the insurance company that the claim was absolutely frivolous, but nevertheless, the policy insured the cigars against fire without defining what kind of fire was acceptable. Rather than appeal, the insurance company parted with $150,000 for the loss of these cigars. But the story doesn't end there. Immediately after the lawyer cashed the check, the insurance company had him arrested on 24 counts of arson. With his own insurance claim and his own testimony from the previous case, the lawyer was convicted of intentionally burning his insured property and sentenced to 24 months in jail and a $24,000 fine. I know it's an extreme example of how we seek to prove ourselves and establish our rights, but often it can be large or small at the expense of other people. Tonight we're crashing into this last chapter of the book of Job as we witness Job with his mouth hanging open in the presence of God, having been exposed to the power of God. In a book that up to now, if you know anything about the book of Job, has largely been full <coughs> excuse me, of conversation, debating about the whys and wherefores of Job's suffering, now it's the time for seeing. Most of the book of Job is a series of questions, asking Job whether he deserves to suffer or not, as to why he was inflicted by God and all that he faced. But now God plies Job with questions, prompting him to take stock of his life thus far. He opened up whole new dimensions for Job to consider, and as a result, we notice that, first of all tonight, Job was comforted in the ashes. Job was comforted in the ashes. If you have a Bible there at home, turn with us to verse 6, where we read there what Job says. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. If you check the context in which Job makes this statement, you will see that nothing has changed for Job. Not one thing. For if you know anything about the story of Job, at this point, Job is penniless, having had his farm and his flocks destroyed and stolen. He's sick. He's covered in boils like leprosy. He's in mourning. He's heartbroken by the sudden loss of almost his entire family. He is still frustrated as the friends who came to comfort him, Job's comforters, brought words of criticism 
and they're still hanging around them like a bad smell. That's what makes the statement of sorrow by Job in verse 6 of repentance so authentic because nothing has changed for him. Same Job, same problems. And yet his heart has been stirred to call out to God and say sorry to God. It seems such a turnaround because of all these circumstances happened to the average Northern Irish Christian today, we would be putting God in the dock and asking God, why have you allowed that to happen to me? Why have you allowed that to happen to us at this time, this suffering, this pandemic, whatever it is, this loss, why have you allowed that to happen to me? We'd be putting God in the dock. But rather, God is putting Job, even in his suffering, in the dock. Job is brought to his knees. And instead of God saying sorry to Job, Job has to say sorry to God. His friends said all along that his suffering was a direct, direct result of his sin, which Job has always denied to this point. So what is going on? Well, Job's response points to a heart change. Throughout the book, we hear Job cry to God for a hearing. He says, God, hear my cry. Listen to my plea. Accept my testimony. He wants a fair trial in God's courts with all that's gone on. And the Almighty God did respond. If you want to read it later, between chapters 38 and 41, God opens up a whole panorama of just how powerful he is through piercing questions that he gives relentlessly to Job. Let me just give you an example. God asks, Job, can you be heard by the clouds? Job, can you control the lifespan of the mountain goats that no one sees? Job, can you order the water cycle that nourishes the earth and rains and waters the ground? Job, can you handle evil and good and decide heaven and hell and what's right? And in answering God in verses 1 to 6, Job confesses three things that I think are really important for all of us as we begin to come out of lockdown into this new normal. Here they are, very quickly. Verse 2, Lord, you are in total control. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Lord, you are in total control. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Verse 3, Lord, I am guilty because I have rabbited on about things I know nothing about. Verse 5, Lord, I thought I had you all worked out. The God box all neatly sorted and tucked away in my mind, but now... My eyes have finally seen what you are like. I wonder, does that remind you of yourself or myself or ourselves, even as a church during this COVID-19 crisis? Have a look at those questions, those words on the screen. Lord, we've come to realize we're not in control of our lives. Lord, we've rabbited on about things we really don't know. I guarantee you've made some assumption or said something over these last four months that has presumed you knew something about what was going on. And to be honest, none of us have a scooby-doo. Lord, we're sorry for boxing you in, thinking we had you all worked out, but you're grander than even our greatest notions of who you are. Comforted, and how is he comforted? Job is comforted by being confronted by God in all his glorious power. And from this moment on, Job will never be the same again. 
He admits his ignorance. He knows his place before God and his world and leads to the climax of the book, which is verse 6. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes, which might not sound particularly positive to our age, which prepares to have our ears tickled with words like, you're great, and we couldn't do it without you. Or if anyone deserves the help and recognition, oh, it's you. We all love to have our ears tickled like that. But these words of Job are words of liberation. For in these words, Job finally comes to realize who he is and the kind of God he has. Job is confronted with his own frail mortality. Job sees how things are finally for the first time. Whilst God is powerful, he's also terrifying. He's wise. The wonder of wonders is that God has spoken with Job at the conclusion of their meeting. Job is both delighted and ashamed. Delighted and ashamed. And friends here in the church tonight and friends at home this evening, that is the gospel in a nutshell. You're delighted in a Jesus that's been given for you but utterly ashamed of your sin and your lack of control and understanding for who you are. But it doesn't end there. You see, Job's humbling of himself in the dust and ashes is an act of unrestrained adoration. His bitterness has been relieved. All his tensions are resolved. He sees now the Lord's purposes do not fail, that there is one God and he alone is in control. Job's confession and comfort come from the dawning realization that he is not God of his own life. He is not his own God trouble and tension and sin and sorrow are compounded when we make ourselves the center of our universe. It would be just like, imagine the cataclysm there would be if the planets all decided that they wanted to be the centerpiece of the universe and it wasn't the sun. There would be fire and heat and cosmic catastrophe without the God-given order where all the planets are set in place and all at their varying degrees and temperatures that keep this universe the way it runs in order. And that is what happens when we place ourselves at the center of our view of our lives, and we think that everything should orbit around us. If you're at the center, if you think you're in control of your business life, your home life, your church life, your health life, but take one part of that away, just like has happened for many of us over these months through loss or illness and you suddenly realize you ain't God. Praise God that this pandemic has finally given this proud, proud generation a perspective. So we question the God who appears to have taken away our little kingdoms and our freedoms even over these last number of months. But here Job finds the greatest relief in the truth that God is God. Do you know what Job finally realized? This world revolves around him and not me. God's purpose is unfolding and I cannot hinder it. God's plan is incredible and I cannot fully comprehend it. God's reproof is reliable and I dare not ignore it. God's way is best and I must not resist it. I wonder, have we learned these truths yet? Have we? 
how satisfying a submissive life even in the ashes can be. At this point, Job was relieved of all his grudges and his gripes, making no demands, anticipating no favors. Rather, he lies there in the dust and the ashes, knowing that God is God. Charles Swindoll puts it very personally when he says, do whatever it takes to convince you what a lightweight you really are. And yes, how much your world still revolves around you. God is doing everything possible to get your attention. Isn't it about time you listened and changed? Here's the second thing we notice in verses 7 to 9 of this last chapter of Job. Job was vindicated before his accusers. Job was vindicated before his accusers. If you have a look at chapter 42 and those verses, it rounds out the story of Job. And what an amazing few verses they are. In fact, to me, they're some of the happiest verses in the whole of the Bible because it speaks of a restoration of relationships between Job and these three guys who'd spent the whole book telling him how sinful he was. Remember what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar had said all along, Job, you're suffering because you're a sinner. But here we read the God of whom they spoke who in their minds pats the righteous on the head and crushes the sinner, turns to them and says, look at verse 7, My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant has. These three guys have become just like the elder brother in the lost story that we've been putting up on the previous Sunday nights, thinking that righteousness is always something that will be rewarded. And those who are sinners have no chance. You know, in our hearts, we have journeyed with Job, and our human nature wants to see these guys clobbered for their smug ways. If you know the story of Job, you almost feel like, are these guys not going to get what they deserve? They've got it all wrong. But God is angry with them. But God doesn't come to them in some fit of rage. God always gives people a way out. God always offers salvation. Remember that this has been a long time coming. He's heard every harsh word, and he announces in verse 7, my anger burns against you, you three. And the reasons that they have not spoken of God, what was right, why were they wrong? They were wrong because they had ignored God's mercy and limited his sovereignty. They had misrepresented God with their words. What a warning. I think for all of us who are Christians, We've got to be so careful how we portray God in our lives, but also with our lips. How we speak suggests what we think of our God. What we sing about, what we say of our God, how we interact with each other, intimate so often who we think our God is. But then we see the true nature of God crashing in at the end of Job. These guys have misused God's name, but God does not say, away with you, I'm fed up with you. Rather, God provides a way for their guilt to be removed and their sin to be atoned for. Look at verse 8. It's a significant sacrifice, isn't it? He doesn't just call for one bull or one goat or one ram, but he asks for seven bulls and seven rams, which if you look back to it, the rest of the Old Testament was a sacrifice fit for a king. And the mediation of Job, he says, Job, I want you to be there at the sacrifice. Job, I want you to pray for these guys. Job, you're to speak to God on their behalf as the sacrifice is brought. So what's going on here? 
Sin needed to be paid for. Their false words needed to be paid for before God's holy presence. Therefore, life must be taken in judgment. That's the way it works in the Bible. Sin must always require a sacrifice for it. But this was a substitutionary sacrifice that God accepted. And for Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, what would have placed in their hands and those creatures, they would have put their hands right in the heads of each of these creatures, these 14 creatures, and they'd have slit the throats as Job prayed for them, and the blood would have oozed out, and then their bodies would have been placed on the fire, and the sacrifice for their sin of poor speech would have been burned up before a holy God. But you see, in the middle of it all, Job... Job was acting like a priest, a high priest, praying for them, looking after the sacrifices, pleading with God on their behalf. But there is Job. And these guys who he's praying for have done him so much harm. There he is, Job still covered in his, his sores. Job cannot offer this world anything. He's standing there literally in rags. His friends should have raised him up. His friend should have bound up his wounds. His friend should have given him hope. But rather, it's the other way around. Job is now giving hope in his rags, who looks nothing like a man, to the guys who are standing there who had done him so much harm. Under God, this suffering servant is a means of saving his accusers. Job does not demand an apology from these guys or seek their revenge despite how he's been wounded by their words, he does not say, God, I'll serve and pray for anyone, but don't ask me to serve and pray for them. No, Job has met with God. In verse 6, he was humbled, but now we read in these verses, the sins of his friends are forgiven and the grudges are all erased. Can't you see Job praying for them as the tears are streaming down his face and the tears are streaming down their face? What do you think he prayed? I think it was something like this. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they have done. Remind you of anyone? Here in the middle of the Old Testament, Job is the suffering servant of God who acts as the priest, the high priest, who enables his friends who had done him so much harm to be forgiven and saved. Where fools spoke ill and nailed one suffering homeless broken man to a tree in the ash and dust of the Jerusalem city rubbish dump, here we just get a pale reflection of what that was to be like. A place on that day where many people accused him. His crime was blasphemy, wrong use of words, claiming to be the Son of God, and as his body was burned up with the, oh, under the full wrath of God's righteous anger for sin, spiritually, emotionally, physically tormented, and in those hours of darkness, what did he cry? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. But here, these wise men of us, as they're known, turned out to be men of folly. Foolishness. Job, the man in the ashes, full of wisdom and grace. But above it all is the mercy of God. Rolling down from heaven. And Job's experienced it. And now that he's experienced it, so too do these friends who let him down. Job was vindicated before God and his accuser. But he was also vindicated before the accuser, Satan. For any of you who have read the book of Job will know that in chapter 1, 
Satan has given permission to tempt Job. In fact, we read in Job chapter 1, verse 8, that God says to Satan, my servant Job, he's blameless, he's upright, there's no one like him. And Satan says, well, he's my man. Let's see how much he'll stand up under the suffering that I'll send his way. Let us not forget that there's a bigger battle going on in these verses. In fact, this paves the way for our last weeks in our study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where over these next few Sunday nights, we are going to be reading together about the fact that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but our battle is against all sorts of evil powers. That's where the battle is played out. The spiritual battle rages in us today. You and I are battlegrounds where heaven and hell collide. A war is being waged even in your soul tonight. And your attention and the direction of your life each day. In Job chapter 1, Satan has been given permission to strip Job of everything to test his true devotion. Satan longed that Job would curse God, and despite everything, Job did not capitulate. In fact, by the time we reach the end of Job, he is more devoted to God and understands more of God than he did at the beginning. And he ends up being a blessing to others and saving others, all through his suffering. Yes, Satan had crushed him, but he kept clinging. You see the difference this relationship with God had been? You see, in chapters 1 and 2, Job is described by God as my servant. By the end of chapter 42, he's described as my servant Job. Job's friends spoke about God as one just to be studied. Satan, well, he just saw God as an enemy to defeat. But to Job, he was a personal savior. There was a trust in place before the storm broke, so that when Satan unleashed hell on Job despite his losses, he knew he still had someone in heaven. Let me just give you two examples from the rest of the book of Job. There's one moment where Job stands up and says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him, speaking of the Savior. And he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. The whole essence of Job crashes in in these verses that God is sovereign and Satan is only allowed to go so far. He's on a tight leash. So all I'm saying to each of us as we watch this tonight is that no matter how tempted or how difficult things might be for you at this moment, Satan is on a leash. And one day that suffering will end. And one day you'll be free from it all. Job was seeking a savior, not a system of rules to follow. His friends' theory and Satan's plans were wrong-headed because unlike Job, they did not know their God. Job was vindicated publicly before his friends and spiritually before Satan because of his relationship and trust in his savior God. And many commentators suggest that this happens at the end of Job because it points to the very end of time. We're in Revelation 12, verse 10, we read, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers, Satan, has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. Friends, if you are struggling, struggling up to your neck in sin or suffering, one day it will be gone. The blackened evil finger of Satan will one day be put away and you'll be free from all of that. That's what this chapter points to. And then finally, and more briefly tonight, 
Job was restored in all areas. Job was restored in all areas. It's verses 10 to 19. Keep in mind, Job worshipped God while he was still in the dust. But he did not know that very soon a great reward lay ahead of him. And so following prayer and repentance, we see Job restored in bolder, brighter colors than before. Friends and family all seem to return and share meals with them. It's interesting. The wider family suddenly return now. And they all turn up with these gifts, rings, golden rings. And they weren't to help Job out of a recession. A golden ring was only given in ancient times to those who were regarded as princely or royal. And then look at verse 13. Job's children are even replaced. Having lost all his children in that freak storm in the early chapters of Job, can't you imagine Job now, maybe in and around the 70 mark, can you imagine him getting a nudge from his wife who has a twinkle in her eye and declares that she's pregnant? So there they are laughing about searching the roost space for boxes of baby clothes again. Not once, but 10 times over. Think of it this way. They can enjoy the blessings of parenting with all the wisdom of grandparents. Now there's a combination worth having. You can't beat that. And we read a very little about the, the girls and nothing about the boys. But these girls must have been very beautiful in character and looks. Look at verse 15. The, the writer says how beautiful they were. And they've got cracking names, don't they? In fact, they're named after the whole Chanel range. If you're to go and read any of your Hebrew, you'll find that each of the girls is named after a perfume or makeup. Inner and outer beauty are nurtured by Job who would have shared his experiences of life and the wonders of his God. And they had the treasure of growing up in a home. Get this, they grew up in a home where the Lord was known and as real as anyone else in life. What a blessing those girls would have had. And in these closing verses, we also see Job's possessions doubled. If you want to do a comparison later on to Job chapter 1, verse 3, you'll see what he originally owned, and he's doubled it. He had 7,000 sheep, and by the end he has 14,000. The camel business doubles from 3 to 6,000. And now he's 1,000 oxen to work the fields and even 1,000 female donkeys. He is a, he's rich before, but now he's famously, enormously wealthy now. And do you see what age he lives to? 140. Hmm. Anyone who knows anything about the Old Testament knows what the age should be of the average person. Three score years and... Leave you a second to do your maths. Yes, that's 70. And what age does he live to? 140. He gets double. But here's the question as you come to the end of Job. Is this just a happily ever after story? One where everything just works itself out in the end. Or, oh, come on, Dave, that's so unrealistic. Or is this a lesson in, well, if I repent properly, God will double my money? What conclusion can we draw? From the conclusion, well, if we're to learn one lesson, it must be this. Look at verse 2. I know that you can do all things, O God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God gives. God takes away. And that's the lesson of our age. We need to grasp this, or we will have learned nothing from these coronavirus months. 
For months I heard the repeated frame from good-going Christian people. I can't wait to be back in church. I miss it so much. Oh, I'm learning so much about God and spending so much time with him now. But you know what? As soon as lockdown was lifted and a hint of sun in the sky and holidays were in the air, that devotion to God suddenly disappeared into a wave of self-indulgence. And I'll do what I like on a Sunday and all you need to do is look at our viewing figures over the last three weeks, and you'll see that that is the case. People are more interested in self than the Savior. All these gifts, everything we have, our health, our homes, our happiness, are all gifts of grace from God to Job. God gives us what we have. For Job, they weren't rewards for a wretched life. Job worshipped God because he was God, not because he was looking for any reward. And now that Job has seen God, he knew better than anyone that living a good life is no guarantee to avoid suffering. And we've got to get that into our heads. Living a good life is no guarantee of avoiding suffering. Being a Christian doesn't save you from pain. God, in his perfect divine decision-making, gifts Job more than he had at first. But we should know as readers of this book, the Bible, that any good things we experience are not deserved, but are rather expressions of God's grace. The book of Job teaches us God does what he pleases. For Job, we might say, he experienced a kind of resurrection in the flesh as far as the Old Testament could understand. It felt like he was dead, but look, he's got a new life. But for Job, no matter how fulfilling his new life over those 140 years of fatherhood and feasting became, look at verse 17, Job died. And Job died. The ending of the book of Job is as marvelous as the start. But the end for Job is even greater. He hinted at such a resurrection hope, even in his darkness, if God can grant such blessing and pleasure here on earth, that can only last for a very short time. He gives us enough hints that the very best is still to come. Folks, our best life will not be here on earth. Let's get that way out of our minds. Job dies, and we need a hope of resurrection. And we need to look beyond Job's house or as ash heap, we need to look beyond the hundreds of people who gathered at his funeral to the day when Jesus, the suffering servant, will return and bring us into a new creation where we too shall have ultimate vindication and the very best that God will give us despite our undeserving, sinful, forgetful natures. God and his grace will do that and will grant heaven to people like you and me who have received his grace. But until that day of hope that lies before us, what are we to say about the book of Job? Well, it doesn't answer the question of suffering. But I'm going to leave you with some words that I used, I think, probably about three or four years ago when we did a little series and we thought about suffering. These words come from a medic, a cardiothoracic surgeon called Andrew Drain, who died on the 3rd of June 2010, aged just 36. Andy was a very fine Christian, and his Christian character and life shone out through his suffering. And having battled leukemia for three years, Andy writes in his book with regard to Job, the book's called Code Red. He writes, 
the seeking we need to adopt is not for answers to our philosophical questions, but rather to seek God himself. That is where Job directs us. There is no fully satisfying intellectual answer to Job's pain, but there is grace, because suffering is not a problem requiring a solution, but a mystery requiring a presence. That presence is the crucified, abandoned Christ who suffered with us and for us. The living God is not to be debated, questioned, and qualified, but to be encountered in the filthy manger, the agonizing cross, and the dust and ashes of an empty tomb, and then worshipped and adored. Friends, if we feel we've been in the dust and ashes these months, we know of one who's been there too. And we call him Jesus, the living God. He is not to be debated, questioned, and qualified, but encountered in the lowest place where he has gone for people like you and me.